Hello and welcome to JLGB Virtual We Are Live. As part of JLGB's recent adjustments to the coronavirus lockdown, we have been helping parents and young people stay entertained and active all online. In order to adapt our delivery to the government restrictions, on the 23rd of March, we launched JLGB Virtual, which runs every Monday to Thursday evening. This is our way of ensuring that we can continue to delight, inform and entertain young people so that they can have some fun, learn new skills and make a difference. Sessions include skills like magic, upcycling and coding. Physical activities and the focus of this podcast series, interviews with expert speakers from a range of backgrounds, including famous actors, social entrepreneurs, government ministers and many more. These interviews are run by young people like myself. So if you have any questions or want to get involved, please reach out to us on any social media platform. Just look for Judge BHQ and message us. We have so many exciting guests for you to listen to and we hope you'll join us live very soon. For now though, join us through our catalogue of guests. Today's guest is Paralympian, presenter and politician Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson, DBE. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson is a Welsh politician, TV presenter, charitable patron, but is best known for her incredibly successful career as a wheelchair racer for the British Paralympic team. Tanny was born on the 26th of July 1969 in Cardiff. We're going to wish her a very happy birthday for Sunday. She was christened as Caris de. When her two-year-old sister first saw her, she nicknamed her Tiny, and very shortly afterwards it became Tanny, and that name just stuck. Born with spina bifida, Tanny is a wheelchair user, but determined to find out for herself what she can and can't do. She found a love for sport when she was at school, and at age 13, she found her passion for wheelchair racing, and she qualified for the British National Wheelchair Racing Squad by the age of 17. And in 1988, Tanny had qualified for the Paralympics and she took part in Seoul's Games, winning a bronze medal for the 400 metres. And in Barcelona, four years later, she won four gold medals in the 100, 200, 400 and 800 metre races. In total, in her racing career between 84 and 2007, Tanny has won a total of 16 Paralympic medals, including 11 golds. She has held over 30 world records. She has 13 world championship medals as well. And even during that career, Tanny was a key advocate, trustee and board member of the National Disability Council, the Sports Council for Wales and UK Sport. Since her retirement, she has also chaired UK Active, sat on the board of Transport for London, the London Marathon, and is last week, the chair of the Duke of Edinburgh's Awards, an award we of course love at JLGB, and Tanny is also a UNICEF ambassador. I could go on and on and list for hours Tanny's involvement in civil society, her achievements, and the recognition she has received for it. But we want to hear it all from her. But we must mention first, she was made a dame in 2005 for her contribution to sport and beyond. And then in 2010, she was awarded a life peerage in the House of Lords as Baroness of Eaglescliff. We are so, so privileged she has found the time to speak to us. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome tonight's very honoured guest, Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. Good evening, Tanny. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. That's uh, very sweet. And thank you very much for the birthday wishes. So, <laughs> How has lockdown been treating you and how are you staying positive? Um, lockdown's been a real mixture for me. So... Um, either as an athlete or a parliamentarian, I spent a huge amount of time traveling. And um, a month in was the longest I've been at home in about 25 years. Wow. And um, so I'm partly really enjoying being at home, um, but it's a big change for my husband and my daughter. My daughter's 18, so it's been amazing to spend this time with her. She's had her A-levels canceled, so there's other stuff going on. Um, but you know, we're, we're happy, we're healthy. Uh, we're, we're very lucky. Um, I think I'm annoying my husband a bit because I am not the tidiest person in the world. Um, but uh, we, we just have to, to get through this. You know, I think um, 
we, we just all have to look after each other. And, you know, I was listening a bit earlier, some of the things that were being talked about, about looking after and being kind and thinking about people. You know, that's, that's why we have to do what we're doing to make sure as many people get through this as possible. Definitely. I think this has been a time, especially for families to bond together. Some of them, maybe not so much, especially I can say that I'm not the tidiest either. Um, but as someone so active that you've been, you've obviously been to five Paralympic Games. So being someone so active, has, has it been tough? not being able to leave the house? Um, so early on when we were able to go out for an hour a day, uh, I was sort of making use of that. Um, and we're very lucky that, although I got rid of quite a lot of my sort of sports equipment when I retired from sport, we've still got a lot of stuff in the gym, uh, sort of stuff in the garage, a lot of gym equipment there. So um, I, there's a lot that I can, can actually do. But actually, you know, a lot of people are working from home. Or someone said to me last week, it's living at work. Um, I've been basically stuck in my office, you know, at a computer screen. We're now doing House of Lords online, which I never thought in a million years that we would ever, ever do. Um, and actually on a process that's based on being present in the building. And you do quite a lot from just bumping into people, chatting to people. You see someone in the corridor and you go, oh, right, can you help me with this? Now that it's all through a computer, it's quite different. But um, yeah, we're sort of getting on with it. So I, I am trying very hard. The only difficult, well, there's, there's a few challenges that where my office is in Parliament, to walk to get a bag of crisps, it's, it's about a third of a mile walk. Um, we're at home, it's about five metres to go to the biscuit <laughs> cupboard. So I was listening to um, the part of the earlier session about diet. So there's some really useful things in there. You know, it's, it's balanced moderation. Um, I had quite a tough day about two weeks ago and I had four bags of crisps in a day. That's not, that's not good. You know, I think quite a lot of us have been doing that most days. I can say that having the biscuit cupboard not very far away is very, very good for me, especially yeah. during school when I'm having it online. Yeah. So we are really, really pleased to have you here with us on our virtual programme. We've been boosting positivity, keeping children and their families active and healthy and entertained for 17 weeks now since lockdown began with the help of a special guest like yourself every evening. You were nominated by another Baroness and a previous virtual guest, the Minister for Civil Society, Diana Barrow. Why did you say yes and why was it important for you to join us this evening? Um, so she's one of the ministers that uh, I work quite a lot with. She's lovely. Um, very, uh, the, the process in the Lords is, you, you don't always get a lot of answers from the ministers, but she's one of the, the people who actually tries to answer the questions that I ask. Um, she's quite hard to say no to because she's so nice how she asks. But also, I think it's really important. Um, I, I visit a lot of schools every year. Um, I talk to lots of young people, youth groups. Um, I'm very interested in how young people engage in politics and voting, not necessarily how they vote. I mean, not, not extremes, but about how we encourage young people to have, you know, their thoughts and they question and they challenge. And for me, unless I speak to young people, you know, I'm, I'm 51 on Sunday. Um, you know, it's... I, I can't talk about what it was like when I was young because when I was young, it was a completely different world from what it is now. So for me, it's really important in terms of the work I do to, to talk to lots of young people. Definitely. We're so grateful that you have found the time to come and speak to us because I'm not the only young, young person on this call that, is, that has been looking forward to this for quite a few days now. Um, so we are all about our acts of kindness here at JLGB that you may have heard a little mm. bit earlier. We always ask our guests what they've been doing to help others. Now you work tirelessly campaigning to support others but is there a particular personal act of kindness that you've been doing during this pandemic um so i've been doing a lot of casework um which um you know where people write to me because they're having issues with housing more so than normal our, our job in the lords is is not to deal with individual cases it's to check and challenge the government and to you know we're a bit like teachers in school we, we sort of mark the commons homework and if we don't think what they've done is good enough, we just say, have another go. Um, so I've been doing a lot, lot more casework um, relating to COVID, um, donating to food banks, uh, which I kind of do anyway. So um, probably not a lot different. Actually, that makes me feel a bit bad, but, but probably more of what I did anyway. I tried to kind of um, spend some time checking in with work colleagues, family, friends, you know, just, um, I think it's always difficult when you, go, you keep sort of saying, how are you? You know, because not everyone wants to answer that question. But I've, I've spent, I think, a lot more time 
concentrated time with my family, my wider family, making sure that I, I have time with them, which is really important because it's really easy to slip into sort of patterns where you don't do much or you watch TV all the day and don't do anything. So for me, I think it's just more of, of what I try to do every kind of day a week of my life. Definitely. I think that just, just messaging somebody, checking in on someone, how they're doing is probably the easiest thing you can do and can yet prove to be one of the most effective things as well. So let's quickly go back to the very, very beginning. Can you tell us a bit more about your childhood, growing up, the youth opportunities that you had that helped shape you? After watching some of your um, previous interviews from a few years ago, I understand your parents fought the local authority to mm. secure you a place at uh, a mainstream school. So what impact did all of that have on you? My parents were amazing. They've, they've both passed away now. But um, so my condition basically i'm missing about 10 bones of vertebra on the back of my spinal cord so my spine's exposed so i could walk a little bit when i was young but not really my my legs never really developed properly so i fell over mostly um and then i became a wheelchair user and lots of people around my parents told them all the things i would never do because i was a wheelchair user and luckily they ignored all that um and just sort of brought me up to be sort of independent and um just try lots of things and, and part of doing sport wasn't about a Paralympic pathway because no one really knew much about it then it's about being fit and healthy and having a healthy lifestyle and being strong enough to to push my wheelchair around um, I went to mainstream school and back then um, education for disabled children was segregated it was a special school system and the system in lots of parts of the country wasn't very good I mean they just didn't there was no aspiration for disabled children so they didn't bother educating them yeah, so my, my father threatened to sue the Secretary of State for Wales over my right to go to mainstream school. And that's kind of where my love of politics or political engagement or changing things happened. So that had a huge impact on my life because it got me into playing sport rather than just physical activity. Got me to understand a bit about politics and change. And, and a lot of the stuff I've done sort of through sport or since has been actually just my parents saying that, you know, I have a, through education, I've had a very privileged life and that, I have a responsibility to do something and pay it back or pay it forward. You can do it both ways um, to, to help other people. Um, so yeah, my, my parents were amazing. They didn't let anyone discriminate against me, um, which was, was pretty cool. I think one of our, one of our previous, uh, somebody that we spoke to, somebody else that I really, really admire, a man named Michael Crossland, his parents protected him from the negativity when people said that he couldn't do this, couldn't do that. Mm. Your parents protecting you and obviously your parents have done, wonders for you i mean i don't think all of our dads would have challenged <laughs> secretary of state to be honest i don't i could probably say my dad probably wouldn't go that far but i think as well with you like so many other of our guests something that you've done or you've had in your life has changed something like you mm. said that you didn't have that that wasn't known when you were a child um but now these kind of things they're normal and you have so many and i know that you currently you were training um, a Paralympian athlete as well because like they now have the opportunities which is fantastic to hear so were you always going to go into sport um or and competing or was there was there ever an any other kind of career on the cards for you actually I wanted to be a lawyer um so for, for most of my childhood and then sort of sport and education fitted alongside it and a lot about being an elite athlete is being born in the right year. So I graduated in 91. I, I competed in 88 at Seoul. So my parents said to me, look, we'll support you for a year to train and travel to, um, to compete in Barcelona. Uh, and then I think my dad kind of expected me to get a real job after that. Um, and he basically said being an athlete wasn't a real job. Um, but then after Barcelona, I had the chance. I had some sponsorship and I was able to keep going. I... I Something else for my parents, which was important, was it was always important to do other things while I was competing. So I got involved in different legislation and campaigning groups and, and other things because um, you're a long time retired from sport. And then the plan when I retired was to do law conversion and become a lawyer. Uh, actually did politics as a degree at university. Um, but then because of lots of other things that I've been involved in, I had the chance to go into the House of Lords. And that's an interview process and it's really the interview process was first question was what's the most name the most interesting debate you've listened to in the house of lords <laughs> and i um 
we do things that are very technical. Interesting is not always a word you'd use to describe our debates. Um, and anyway, this interview, so I got through. And so, yeah, I've never quite sort of become a lawyer, but I sort of do it on the other side now. But um, I, I think, you know, as a youngster, it was important to keep your options open. And my parents were really keen on education, whether that's formal education in school or reading or reading newspapers, learning about the work, traveling. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, as an athlete, I've, I've, and then since I retired, I've got to travel to just amazing places around the world. You see how other people live and how they're educated and how girls are treated. And that, that all contributes to the person that I am now. I must say that I think if you won gold medals, your parents would, would probably not want to stop you going and doing some more sport. I think giving you that <laughs> career sport after you've won some gold medals, I think any parent would, would not want to stop you. Um, and you've obviously had an amazing career in sport. So at the age of 17, you became part of the British wheelchair racing squad. What was it like to join such a prestigious team at such a young age? And now Paralympians are now reversed as troop heroes and sport icons. But I understand that, that wasn't always the case with these Paralympian athletes. So what was it like being a part of that prestigious team as well as the growing sport community at the time? I mean, as an athlete, it was amazing to make the squad because then I knew I had a chance of making Seoul, which I, I went to, I just turned 19. Um, I remember someone very early on in my sports career asking me what I did, and I said, wheelchair racing. And they got very upset, and they said, oh, well, that's just awful. And I'm like, well, why is wheelchair racing awful? And they said, well, doesn't it depend on how fast the person who is who pushes you? And it's like, no, we don't get pushed. I don't know what they thought it was. I mean, it was horrendous. So, um... Yeah, I mean, nobody really understood it, but, you know, I, I was sort of frequently asked, do you train? Yeah, like 15 times a week, 50 weeks of the year. Yeah, we do. And um, it, it, was, it was amazing to be part of a, a movement that changed so much in the time. And I still am involved in it, and it's still changing and evolving. Um, it was a lot of fun, you know, as well. You know, I think if you, if you want to be good at something, yes, you have to have some natural talent. I mean, wheelchair racing was the only sport I was any good at. I was rubbish at everything else. So... But you have to kind of love it to work in it and to train and you know to train as much as we did um you know there are days which are better the words both hard boring you you know you you just have to get on with it and do it and I think as well from being quite a young athlete I need really like you can't go back you know now I'm 50 I can't go back and do what I was doing at 20 physically you can't um you know I'll never be as strong or as fast so for me it was it was making that moment count that was really important and through all, I mean, I had a long career. Um, it was about looking after myself, eating properly, sleeping, you know, not, not doing other things, um, you know, making choices about what I did, but, but making every moment count that, that was really important. I think if you, you want to do something, then, you know, there's, there's very few people who genuinely have overnight success. You know, there, there's something, I mean, this is not a great analogy at all, but I can't really think of a better one is that, you know, people talk about the Spice Girls, about being an overnight success. And go, they went to stage school. They were together for a year before they started, you know, rehearsed. Yes, nobody had heard them. They released a single and it climbed up the charts. But, you know, it, you don't suddenly, from one day to the next, just become brilliant at something. It's, it's all the boring stuff that you have to do to, to make that happen. And I think that's I was good at making myself do the hard stuff, which is training. There were definitely in school, there were children, young women who were more talented than me but they couldn't make themselves train in the way that I could just make myself do the hard stuff. Definitely. You certainly took, you certainly took your opportunities. And I think you've given quite a lot of our viewers some amazing sporting moments to look back on that I'm sure you do as well. So you've heard a lot of my voice and as well as the viewers have heard quite a lot more of my voice this evening. So we're going to go to a few questions from our other members in the audience. So our first question is from Gaia, who has another question for you. Hello. Um, there we go. Hello. So my question is, you graduated from Northborough University in 1991. Mm. What was it like balancing an incredible, incredibly successful sporting career, which I assume was a lot of training and tight regime and a degree? Is there any tips that you have for time management for us? Yeah. Um... <laughs> I didn't always balance it very well, I have to say. Um, my second year at university, I had a fantastic year competing, uh, struggled a bit with some of my exams, um, and got through, but um, I think it's, um, this sounds really, probably really simple. It's 
you need sleep you need to rest and when you're trying to do lots of things sleep is the one thing that you think you can forfeit and i know i can't i can survive for quite a few nights on not sleeping very much but at some point you know i, I kind of crash so um and uh writing so i i love to-do lists i'll show you i don't know mm, here you go um this is my diary of my to-do lists which i plan out every day um and I don't know, it's all scribble. I don't know, let me find a page that's not horrendous. So, you know, I have lists of, actually I've got two to-do lists. Uh, I've got my diary and then I'm, I'm very realistic about what I can do in a day um, in, in terms of not putting 200 things on my to-do list because I'll never do them, but sort of planning out the week ahead. And I used to try and plan back from when um, I think essays had to be submitted but actually be quite realistic about, you can't write an essay in 45 minutes because you probably need to do four hours of reading. And so that then helps me work. I sound like really sad, but that, and then it helped help me work out my social time. Or it was like, okay, I really want to do the social thing. So I have to read this in three hours, not four hours. So, um, and then it, all, it can all go totally wrong and you have to adjust and adapt and things like that. Um, but for me, it's, it, you, you've got to try and, you, you can't do everything, but you have to try and, and if you want to be an elite athlete, you can't go out with your mates six nights a week. So you just have to decide what's important. I think the great thing about being at Loughborough was that lots of people were very sporty. Um, so, you know, the first question, well, question when you arrive, what's your name, what sport do you do? Um, that kind of helped in terms of just the training culture which um, exist in different ways in, in other universities. But yeah, I, I try to just plan things out and, and be realistic and then, you know, just be, be sensible as much as you can. But I didn't get, I absolutely didn't get it right all the time. Absolutely didn't. I make to-do lists as well every day. <laughs> I love to-do lists. Me too. Otherwise I forget what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah. Um, and um, the other thing is now, I mean, I'm an older and, you know, working in Parliament, I have... Um, an amazing PA, which is very fortunate, which to your age you wouldn't, but um, he's a bit like my dad. And when I've said I'm going to do something, he'll ring me up and say, Tani, you, you said you were going to do this by today. And it's like, <laughs> and I can't, I can't fib to him because he's like, it's a bit like my dad. And it's like, oh, right, I'm doing it now. And Guy will say, are you doing it right now? Or are you going to do it in the next hour? Or are you going to do it by the close of play today? And you and so that guy's a bit of my conscience uh, as well in terms of, if I've, he, he gets um, very politely, but quite sort of strict. If I say I'm going to do something by a certain day, he expects it to be done. And to be honest, it's easier to do it than to try and make up a reason why I haven't. So everyone should have someone like Guy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Guy, for your question. So I think we are ready to go to Miles now, if you've got your question. Uh, so my question is, so your first Paralympics was in Seoul, 1988, where you won a bronze in 400 metres. Mm. Uh, so what did it feel like being on the podium and the anthem playing and having won your first medal? Also, how did you feel winning four gold medals in Barcelona in 1992? So in Seoul, my 400 metres was my last event. So um, it was... I wasn't expected to win anything in, in Seoul. So to come away with the bronze was amazing. And, um, you know, being on the podium is, is really special because you've got the whole stadium and, and you know, it's the only gold medalist, gold medalist to have the national anthem played. So um, it was an American athlete who, who won that race. And I remember thinking, okay, what do I need to do differently in four years time to, to be in gold medal position? Barcelona was incredible um but you know I was racing day in day out so you couldn't get to enjoy it until you I'd got to my my fourth final um and you know being on the podium it's really special but what happens is you you know there's a lot of prep and warm-up before you race you do the race you get to do a lap of honor you have to leave the track and then you sit around and wait for quite a long time before your medal ceremony and by then you kind of you're hungry and you want to see your family and there's a lot of hanging about and then you get your medal and you still have to queue to pick up your bag and queue for the bus and queue for everything else. Um, if you're really lucky, your teammates, when you get back to the village, will just say, it's all right. There's not some, you know, red carpet or anything. Um, you know, it's like you get a bit of a nod um, because they're all doing their own things as well. But 
it, it's really, really amazing being in that situation. And um, athletics crowds are generally very positive and very warm to everybody because as a whole, you know, it's one of the sports where so many countries compete and everyone sits in different places in the stadium. So you don't have all the British support. It's not like football or something, which is 50, 50. Um, so it's always really lovely to see, you know, the Union Jacks um, and, and that sort of celebration. Uh, and quite a lot of people, because our, our national anthem is relatively simple as a tune. Um, so quite a lot of people sort of will, not the words, but sort of hum along to it or sing along to it. So that's always quite nice when you've, you've got this, this sort of the stadium behind you it's it's pretty cool actually um and it doesn't you know for, for all the training and all the races you do you know very few people get to be part of the gb team let alone experience that so it's it's a it's a very privileged place to be in thank you thank you thank you miles so our next question is from eris hi as a pioneering woman in sport you have trailblazed the way for the future of all young women of all abilities can you tell us a little about your experiences and how things may have changed for women in sport? What more do you think we need to do? And do you have any advice for young women that you wish you knew when you started? Oh, wow. Gosh, that's a hard one. Um, yeah, so when, when I started, um, female athletes were treated very differently to how they're treated now. Um, and it was quite patronising um, and... Uh, you know, there wasn't equal sponsorship or support or media coverage. I mean, it's still not 50-50. There's still a long way to go. But certainly, um, in terms of getting sponsorship, a lot of young women were encouraged to um, kind of take pictures which were more sort of exposing, um, you know, um, kind of sexier pictures. And, you know, you'll get sponsorship if you dress this way. And I always found that really uncomfortable and didn't want to sort of do that. And a lot of that has changed, thank goodness. You know, a lot of the pictures of, that were taken of young women were just quite uncomfortable. Um, and, and that change happened sort of in the early 90s where the picture editors of a lot of the newspapers suddenly realised how they were portraying women just wasn't right. And um, I, I was in a conversation with somebody and, and it was a, not a terribly nice picture. And said to me, how, how would you feel if that's how your daughter was portrayed in that way? And there's a bit of a wake up call by um, by some of the people I was talking to. I mean, there were lots of other people involved in this kind of transition as well. Um, I still think it's quite hard for women to get into coaching. Um, and female athletes have to make different decisions to male athletes in terms of family or having children. Um, so when my husband and I decided to try for a family, the first thing I did was get my training diary out and see where it fitted. Uh, and I'll be honest, I had to Google how many weeks it takes to have a baby. Cause I was like, nine, what does nine months mean? Um, like 40 weeks. Wow. So, um, yeah, women still have to make lots of different decisions about their career, but it has improved lots and lots. And I think what's been amazing, certainly since London 2012, there are so many more female athletes doing well who were sort of, you know, talking about these things and changing attitudes, I think that's helped. So, you know, the, the advice I'd have to, to young athletes is, you know, don't, don't do things that you're not comfortable with, you know, understand. So there was a phase back in the early sort of 2000s of um, uh, body painting British kit onto female athletes and then sort of basically being naked and having body paint on and I remember talking to one young athlete who felt that she was being pushed into doing that. And I was saying, you know, just d don't do things that you're not comfortable with. You've, you know, you've got understand the choices that you are making because they'll, they'll, you know, be with you forever. Um, and so it's, it's, it's hard because if it links to sponsorship and things like that, you know, women feel that they, they might have to do that, but I think you've got to stay true to yourself. What I would say as well is, you know, find lots of other women and there's lots of really good men and lots of really good male agents out there you know, find other people to talk to about those things because you won't be the only person going through that. Um, so it is better, you know, there, there is more sponsorship, there's more women's coverage, but there's there's more that, that we have to do. And um, just from personal experience, you know, I had um, a team manager say to me um, that becoming a mother would make me soft. 
And it's like, why would, you know, it changes what I'm doing, but it, it doesn't, you know, change what I'm trying to do. Anyway, what uh, I said, um, sorry, something's just flushed up on something. Sorry, no, that's okay. Um, sorry, message just flushed up. Um, yeah, so what I said to my, my team manager, which is probably not the smartest thing to say, was let me stick a bowling ball inside you, cut it out with a knife and see if you're training two weeks later. You know, I'm not soft. I have changed my commitment to my family's change, but my commitment to sport hasn't. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's things like that, that that sometimes are hard to deal with. But, you, you know, I think for me, talking to other people makes it easier to understand and, and to, to, to help make smart decisions about the decisions that you take. Thank you, Eris. So our next question is from James. Hi, thank you. So um, because of the coronavirus, the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics had to sadly be moved back to 2021. Um, what impact do you think this pandemic will have on the selected team of GB athletes? It's, it's going to be really hard because there'll be some athletes who were just hanging in there for their last games, as I kind of was in um, Athens, which was my last games. Um, it all depends what year you're born. There'll be some young athletes who wouldn't have made the team this year, who now, because it's a year later, may make the team. So the teams might look quite different. Um, it's been hard, I think, on some of the athletes in lockdown for training. If you're in a centralised training environment where you have some of the best equipment in the world, um, you know, and you're then sort of training with stuff in your garage, it's, it's not the same. So... Uh, my husband's a triathlon coach. He was actually in Spain when lockdown was starting there. And, you know, he had not very long to pack up and leave to make sure he wasn't caught in lockdown there. And I remember getting a phone call from him um, and uh, him, him saying, right, Spain's locking down. You know, actually, the UK is going to be next. Basically, get online and order as much sort of training equipment for the squad that he coaches as possible. So I was kind of going through every website, ordering kettlebells and um, stretchy bands and all sorts of things. But um, I, I think for some, it's, it's going to be hard. Most athletes, you have a couple of weeks off a year, you then go into about three months winter training and then you're competing. This will be the longest, I mean, by, by far, that anyone will have not competed for. So trying to balance the... Um, the opportunity of going back into winter training and really building up your strength and your fitness, but also maintaining that, you know, because competing is quite motivational. Um, maintaining that's going to be quite hard. So I think we're going to see some very different medalists next year, some very different people coming through. Um, we might see some young athletes who maybe the sport didn't think they were going to make it, but then suddenly make this jump because they've had this whole year where they can train. So it's, it's going to be very different games next year. Oh, thank you. Thank you, James. So the next question is from Matt. Hi there. Uh, uh, you, activities helped give us young people a real sense of resilience and determination. You know, resilience from not always winning or from inevitable injuries. But what unexpected challenges have you had to face over your career, and how did you learn and grow from it? I think, you know, could that be applied to us for sort of general life advice? So, I mean, um, I've sort of said this before, but it's a lot of what you have to do in your working life is not always really exciting. So competing at a Paralympics when you're competing in front of 100,000 people is amazing. You know, that is so exciting. Training in the middle of the winter in the northeast of England where I live, not very exciting. You know, but you've got to do that really boring stuff to have that chance to be in the team, to be on the start line, to try and try and win. So there's loads. I mean, in the whole of my career, I've lost more races than I won. People just remember the, the ones I've won. Um, they remember some of the ones I've lost. I've lost because I've lost some spectacularly on live TV. Um, you know, my 800 meters in Athens, which was my strongest event, been unbeaten for a number of years. I lost because I made a split second decision, which was the wrong one. Um, people still stop me in the street and remind me of it. It was 2004. People go, that race in Athens was bad, wasn't it? Yeah, I know, I was there. Yeah, yeah. Was, um, what I mostly get these days is, oh, you're not as skinny as you used to be. No, because I'm not training anymore. Um, but, uh, 
yeah there's 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 sort of almost too many i mean that probably doesn't help there's almost too many sort of ups and downs to mention but it's it's when you're injured it's when you know you don't feel like you fit in i mean i've had it through my career where i didn't feel like i fitted in with the team um and some of those things are, are hard to deal with so you know for me it was always right okay get back train and prove it on the track prove that um i'm improving and that i'm getting better um and the reality really sadly is some people will just make decisions about you as individuals without knowing you people make decisions about me all the time either because of what i do in politics or because i'm a wheelchair user or because i'm a woman or because i'm welsh and you know some of those things are really really hard to change people who have deeply embedded views so um i, I experience a reasonable amount of and, and i get treated way better than 99.9 percent .9 of disabled people i know but i do experience discrimination as a disabled person um and in terms of getting on trains and public transport and things like that and i think what i've learned is to to try and respond in a really polite and positive way which is not always easy to do i so i guess a lot of um people like you can't get on that train or before lockdown someone said to me in london and um, maybe, maybe you should travel when it's not rush hour because people have jobs to go to but yeah i'm going to my job in westminster actually and sometimes that makes me really angry and i've got quite a fiery temper um and what i want to say is really really impolite and would make me feel better for about 20 seconds but wouldn't change their attitude and wouldn't be that constructive so there are a couple of times uh, where i've just sort of say i'm going now because i can't even say anything so i always try to say something you know because actually it's not it's not worth it and then go away and then come back and have a conversation and say i'm really sorry but i was quite upset by what you said and the reason i was upset was because and and because I, you've got to try and educate people and that is not easy with the discrimination that lots of people face it's really not easy to do that but um i think for me that's the way that i've figured out books better for me trying to change change people's view um but but there's loads of different ways to do that but but for me that that sort of works out to be the best thing yeah. thank you thank you matt so we've got quite a few more questions to get through so we're going to try and race through okay i'll be quicker um so <laughs> our next question is from josh we oh yeah i've been unmuted now um so we had the ceo of sense as a guest a few weeks ago mm -hmm. and he spoke about how those with disabilities have been kind of forgotten during mm -hmm. the pandemic and yeah. in many cases they've kind of been put to the back of the queue mm -hmm. how do you find the government's response um for the disabled community during this pandemic and what more could be done now and in the months ahead to not only support those with disabilities but their families carers so i think some of the guidance on shielding was quite confusing and i think some of the guidance now on what we're all meant to be doing and whether we're two meters apart one meter apart we'll, i mean it's it's quite i'm just sort of not going close to anybody to be honest um and i think very early on um some doctor surgery sent out um, automatic do not resuscitate orders around disabled people and people just got a letter through the post which said if you get it we're not treating you and that was really very very uncomfortable it was disabled people who didn't necessarily have an underlying health condition and it was just some of that stuff was just very badly handled but disabled people are choosing to shield and will choose to shield longer than maybe the government advice because you can't necessarily control people around you how you get breathed on and, and things like that so i do think disabled people have been forgotten um and i think sometimes disability awareness 20 years ago was better than it is now and it's bizarre because we've got paralympics we've got more disabled people in work we, i see more disabled people every day um but there's not always the understanding of the discrimination that they face um disabled people have been asking for working from home for years haven't got it suddenly because the pandemic we're all working from home um and and it's it's just thinking a bit more about what changes we need to make you know when i said if i want to catch a train i'm meant to book a seat 24 hours in advance trains only take two wheelchair users buses only take one so if, if me and a group of mates wanted to go and protest on the streets of london about something we'd all have to go on different trains you know it's, it's things like that that you don't and why why would you think about it unless you've got experience of it 
so I think that's where it's you know me and and you know um, you know the guys from Sense and everyone else we, we need to be talking about these things more publicly so there's that more understanding and just a bit more kindness around how we treat disabled people how we treat older actually how we treat everybody but you know disability does get lost thank you thank you Josh so our next question is from Emily hi there how are you hello Hello. So after so many incredible achievements in 2010, you were appointed a baroness in the House of Lords. How did it make you feel given to be given that position? And what are you particularly campaigning for right now? I understand you're working on rethinking physical fitness in the UK. Yeah, so um, the interview process, because I'm an independent, I'm a crossbencher, is, is sort of these sort of slightly strange interviews. And then you have all these sort of questions about your past and if you've done anything in your past that you need to declare and it's like no i've had a really boring life and um it's like you sure you haven't done anything illegal i'm thinking what have i done and i had a one I had, a, I had several phone calls saying are you sure you've not done anything illegal and I'm thinking maybe i've done something illegal and i've forgotten about anyway i hadn't but um so actually the way it worked was it was a tuesday night my daughter had come home from school and at 7 30 said mum i need green felt for tomorrow so we sort of charged off to the local shopping centre. It's like two minutes to eight before the shop shuts. She's looking at something else in the shop. And I get a text message that says on Friday at 10 o'clock, it'll be announced you've been elevated to the House of Lords. And I'm, I'm in Hobbycraft with my husband going, and he's like, what? So that was all a bit surreal. And I rang my dad and he said, um, well, it's still not a proper job, is it? Okay, right, thanks, Dad. Um, he, he was an amazing man. but. Um, and Karis told her teacher I had a job collecting tickets at Westminster Tube Station, which I don't know how she confused that anyway. Um, so it, it's quite scary. Your first couple of weeks there is really scary because there's all these rules and protocol and things like that. But people are generally really nice and kind and, and teach you the rules and help you. So I work on disability rights, uh, women's rights um, and physical activity. And then so during the pandemic, we've been looking about, you know, it's a global health crisis how we can make sure people are fit and healthy and we can safely open gyms and we, we can get people back to being active. So there's, there's always, and there's 20 other things on my list of, I'd like to change. So there's always something to do to try and sort of shift the discussion. It's never ending. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emily. So our next question comes from Jordana. Hi, um, I was wondering, so as chair of um, UK Active, um, you must be pleased that now um, over the weekend gyms um, and leisure centres are going to be opening again. Um, but I was wondering if you had any advice for people that might be a bit nervous about going back um, to those centres as well as keeping their family safe and kind of how they can promote their own fitness but keeping a balance. One of the things with the pandemic, people have, who've never done any physical activity have started doing it, sort of walking, running or going on bikes. I mean, early on we just saw lots of people on bikes that obviously never been on them ever because the bike seat was set at the wrong height so i used to just shout at people in the street saying fix your bike seat which is i know so it makes it better if it's the right height anyway <laughs> um so um i think with everything there's got to be sort of personal choice so the the gym sector has done a huge amount of work to um take machines out check the ventilation have sanitation you know gels everywhere think about the changing rooms um and i think if you remember you, the best thing is just go and look and see you know a lot of the gyms will have booking in systems to limit the number of people um in in the, the building so they're not overcrowded um and i think ultimately everyone's got to sort of try and make some decisions about you know what what they feel comfortable doing but um certainly a huge number of people have missed going to the gym a lot of people have missed swimming you know uh, several million people in the country swim very regularly and that's been really hard because they're having to do different types of physical activity. But what I would say is, you know, it's really important. 80% of women are not fit enough to be healthy because they don't do enough physical activity. So for me, that's really important that, you know, more than anything, young women and all women think, think about being active because um, pension ages are only going one way up. Um, and, you know, to have a long and healthy lifestyle, part of it is, is being active and, the session I was listening to before about you know what you eat and all those things all those things make a difference but but ultimately it's it's personal choice but but nobody wants no one in the sector wants to be anything other than completely safe in terms of, of getting people back in thank you Jordana so our final audience question is from Ollie 
Good evening. Um, in 2011, you made a series of recommendations as part of the Leadership 2020 Commission mm. on the future leadership of civil society. Uh, 10 years on, do you think you knew what the world was going to look like then? Or has it changed due to this pandemic? Or is the pandemic just a catalyst for this change? Also, have your recommendations been enacted? And what do you think needs to be done to support our future leaders of the society in 2030? Wow, that's a nice, easy question to finish on. Uh, it's best to last. <laughs> wow. Uh, the the recommendations, you know, not not enough. I end up sitting doing lots of work on rec making recommendations, and some move a bit closer than others. You know, I don't think anyone. Um, well, I don't think any of the public predicted anything like this. I mean, there's lots of sort of scientific specialists who've been talking about sort of global pan pandemics with SARS and other things that happened for a while, but um, I think uh, it caught a lot of people unawares. Um, so uh, I, I like to try and think about all the opportunities and everything. So that has, you know, really difficult for an awful lot of people during this time. Um, there's a lot of people who face a huge amount of uncertainty going forward in terms of work. You know, in the last couple of weeks, there's 600,000 people extra who are now unemployed and there's going to be lots of challenges in, in that. Um, but also, I think we need to look at the opportunities about do we need to travel as much as we do? You know, especially if you kind of live in London, you know, commuting an hour to work is just sort of, you know, standard. Um, do we need the same business space? You know, actually, what does housing look like? So I think it's given us a chance to challenge and think about things in, in a lot different way than, than we ever would have done before. Um, and in terms of sort of leadership, I mean, it's pretty hard. I mean, I'm not sure I've got a view on everything, but not all of it should be public. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I'd, I'd want to be trying to make some of these decisions because, you know, me sitting in my front row, it's a bit like when I was an athlete and you're spectators, people come up and go, why did you do that? That was stupid. I would have done this. And um, I kind of think some of those things about government, or, you know, any government, not just this one. You're like, well, why are you doing that? I'd have done this. But it's very different thinking what you do and actually what you would do in that situation um, when you, you don't carry any responsibility with that. So I think there's just a huge opportunity to think differently about how, how we live and work and behave with each other uh, and how we treat each other. The bit I worry about is whether it's going to be a bit like the 2012 Games, which Games time, everyone was lovely in London. And, and then it kind of trickles away. And everyone at the moment is talking about what we're going to do differently. But a year from now, will we really be doing things in a different way? You know, I mean, the fact that what you guys have done is amazing. You probably never would have thought, I never thought we we're going to have a House of Lords online. We never would have done it unless we'd, we'd had this pandemic. So um, I think for me, it's not forgetting the really good stuff as we go forward in terms of um, what it's helped me think differently about in terms of helping young people and things. Um, it's about we have to give more young people an opportunity to do different things. So I, I bring youngsters into Parliament and things like that and mentor some young people. Um, what are we going to do differently? What can we all? Because every single one of us can do something differently that will help other people. Um, and, and that's the thing that I think for me we have to hold on, on, on to is, is, is not forgetting things like that. I'm not sure that even vaguely answers your question about Leadership 2020, but um, no, it, it's, it's back when we wrote the recommendations, it seemed like a really long time and it's gone like that, you know. So we, we, we definitely need to do more to make leadership more diverse, more inclusive, different people, different voices, different backgrounds. Um, and it's the same with things I talked about women earlier. We we we're not we're not there yet, and you know, yeah, we all we all have to do a bit more. Thank you. That was a really hard question. Thank you, Ollie. So, um, just so you know, we've got over two hundred current viewers on Facebook, which is absolutely fantastic, and we hope you're enjoying the interview as much as we all are here on Zoom. Um, so we've got one quick question from one of our audience members, from Louis. Hi, I've got um, some questions. So, first, like when you were younger, did you like get were like your friends or anyone in school like bullying you or or like did they think as a positive? I did get a little bit of bullying, um, not from anyone in school, but from people outside and people who didn't understand who just had a view that people in wheelchairs were evil. Um, 
I did have a family member who used to try and cover me, cover me with a blanket when I went out, like the whole of me, to cover me up. I was a bit weird. Because um, she didn't want to see people to see me. I'm not sure what sticking a blanket over the whole of me and pushing me in a wheelchair did. But anyway, um, that was a bit weird. Um, but um, I, I always had really supportive friends, which I was lucky that if one of them saw people treating me differently, one of them would kind of step in and challenge it and all just, you know, push back a little bit, which I think was, was really helpful. I think some of the bullying we see now, it, that's really hard. And that's where you kind of, you have to talk to other people about it to get help because it's hard to deal with on your own. But I, I was really, I didn't have a lot of it at all. I have one more. Um, so about when we just before we went into lockdown, um, I got a trial at um Liverpool Football Club. Do you have any advice so I can go on like forever? Yeah. So um, have you been able to kind of do any training during lockdown? Have you been able to do any training in lockdown? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, is that your dad? Hello, <laughs> goodbye. Um, you keep training because I think some people in lockdown were like, oh, well, if I stop training, everyone's going to stop training. Um, it, it, it's keep doing your exercise, your drills, do really good warm up and cool down, look after yourself, don't get injured. So learn about not being injured. That is really, really, really important, especially in a sport like football. Um, but enjoy it because there's lots and lots of young people who want to play sport at high level and it's pretty hard to get there. So always make sure you love it and think about other things as well. Because you might fall out of love with football in a bit and it might not be what you want to do forever. So um, have a really good time. Train smart. Keep, keep doing what your drills and everything you have to. And, and good luck. Remember me when you're playing for Liverpool. Thank you, Louis. So um, we've got just a few more questions for you. You've been absolutely fantastic so far. So it can't have been easy with the challenges you faced growing up, especially as a teenager, going through adolescence as some of us are now. Did you ever feel down or depressed with life? These are kind of emotions that quite a lot of teenagers are now, nowadays are going through. Did you ever feel down and depressed um, with everything around you? And how did you soldier on to go and do the amazing and great things that you did for yourself and for your country. How did you manage your mental health? So when I was a teenager, nobody talked about mental health. So I don't think you thought about it in the same way that you do now. Um, so a lot of it was you just were told to get on with things. So if you were feeling unhappy, it was like, well, yeah, get on with it, which um, it is not terribly helpful in terms of talking through those things. There were a few times, I wouldn't say depressed, but there were times that were sort of difficult and sort of challenging um, in terms of, uh, I mean, this, well, I, d I don't know if this is, it's not depressed, it's a funny one. Um, but a, a boyfriend I had when I was a bit older, he, he didn't tell his parents I was a wheelchair user. And um, the first time I went home to meet them, they opened the door and kind of went and looked down and saw me in a wheelchair and sort of jumped. So that, that was quite funny. And I said to him, like, why didn't you? And he said, well, it didn't matter to me. So that is kind of quite sweet, but you probably should have told your parents I was, I was a wheelchair user. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we just didn't talk about those things. But I, I think actually the internet has changed. The pressure on young people to look a certain way, to dress, to have your hair. You know, when I was growing up, you didn't really go to the hairdressers. You, there weren't nail bars. There, were, there wasn't a choice of places to buy clothes, you know. So there wasn't all this pressure to, you know, you, you didn't see all these different women from the, around the world who didn't eat any real food and a size zero. So it, it wasn't the same. So I, I think a lot of it for me is, is stepping back from the, the, the stuff that's not real. You know, some of these very famous people, influencers, whatever, you know, they have full-time makeup artists and full-time hairdressers and just full-time stylists and, Anyone can look amazing if you have your hair and makeup done for two hours. Um, and so that is, it's, it's separating what, what's there and what is real. And I, I think that's really important to, to kind of love yourself and just be comfortable with who you are. What I do think is really important now is, is, is find people to talk to. If you're feeling 
in a difficult place, find somebody to talk to about it. And, and that's, that's really, really important. There will be people out there that, that you can talk to. Thank you so much. That, uh, that answer just means so much to me. Like with like, I know loads of people going through problems at the moment and it is just about finding someone to talk to. Do you wish that you had those figures to talk to and it was more talked about when you were younger or were you happy with how it worked out for you? Um, I think, I mean, I had, uh, not always, but mostly I had a really good relationship with my parents, so I could talk to them, but I had friends who could not talk to their parents about anything like this. Um, so uh, I think uh, it probably would have been a bit easier. I think probably I found in my 20s harder than being a teenager in terms of finding my place in sport and the world and graduating and, and, and that, you know, I was really shy as a, as a teenager and, and sort of well into my 20s. Sport made me kind of talk to people and come out of myself. So um, I think my 20s were, were harder. Um, but I think what sport teaches you is that you can put talent and hard work and you can have a really good group of training partners and people around you. Um, and, and they're the, the kind of the, the, the important people that, that, that you have. My training partners are still kind of in my life, just in a different way. Um, and so every, the other thing, everyone has ups and downs. You just don't always see it. You know, yeah. some people are really good at hiding it. And, yeah, I mean, and that's where it's, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people that are good at hiding it. So I think it's just about looking yeah. under that and seeing past it. So yeah. we've just got two more questions for you. These are unprecedented times and the physical mental health and economic impacts may yet affect us all for some time to come. Mm. Do you have hope for the future? Are you proud of your country, your community's response and the resilience that they've shown? What positives do you think are going to come out of this? Oh, um, I mean, there's just been some amazingly lovely, kind things that have happened. Um, I saw early on where an airline pilot who obviously wasn't flying started delivering food to local communities. We've seen people who work in gyms, you know, going shopping for older people. I've seen so many acts of kindness. I think what we've also seen at the same time is a world that is just a bit of a weird place to be. Um, you, you look at, um, you know, the, the murder in America of George Floyd uh, and, uh, you know, some of that stuff and the protest and, uh, you know, the, the one thing that strikes me is that we now have camera phones that you can film injustice, wherever, whatever it is. Just what on earth happened before camera phones? Anyway, that's a whole philosophical debate. Um, so you can call it out. So we, we, we've got some horrible stuff going on and some amazing acts of kindness. So actually, I, I am mostly really positive about just looking at the good stuff. I think for me, I, I try to find, you know, I spend a lot of time reading the papers and the news and briefing papers and policy documents. I try to find one kind of happy thing a day. And the thing I found today uh, is um, uh, it's a family in America, and it, I found it on YouTube, and um, where uh, uh, a daughter had died and her heart was given to a young man and the dad had decided to cycle across America. And he found, he kind of stopped off to see the young man. And the young man gave him a bag and had a stethoscope in. And then he listened to his daughter's heart in this young man's chest. And I'm just crying my eyes out. And, and my daughter's like, are you crying again? And it's like, yeah, I'm not, an, I'm, but it's happy. So I think for me, I try and find one, one happy, it might be a cat or something daft or something, um, but one, one happy thing a day that just helps me. And everyone's got a different way of doing it, but that sort of helps put it into perspective for me about why we have to stay positive. Because if we lose that positivity, We'll never change anything, you know, and, and, and the stuff to change. So, yeah, f find one happy thing a day or an act of kindness. Yeah, I think especially with our acts of kindness that we do every night here on Virtual, one of those is to look up positive stories in the world because they're happening all the time. Mm. So finally, uh, you've been absolutely fantastic this evening. Finally, we always ask our guests to nominate or ask another celebrity to come on and be a future guest on our programme and help entertain everyone all the young children and young people stuck at home so if you've enjoyed this evening's interview we really, we really hope that you have done like baroness baron did with you who would you like to nominate 
Who would I like to nominate? Oh, wow. Uh, I should have thought about this before. Tell you, can I, has everyone else said someone's name? Most people have, yeah. Oh. <laughs> so there's another couple of Paralympians that I would like to invite. But I, so, I, okay, I might give you a list then because I don't, their training commitments are a bit strange. So there's Sarah Story, who's Britain's uh, highest medal winning Paralympian. There's Sophie Christensen, who's equestrian. Uh, so I would like to try and find you an, another Paralympian, but who's a bit closer to your age than my age. Anything would be absolutely fantastic. I will do my best. Thank you very much. It's been it's been a real privilege for me, especially to talk to you tonight. So thank you for joining us this evening and for inspiring all of us. We've really loved hearing about your incredible and inspirational career, your tireless campaigning and your thoughts for a bright future. Good luck to you with everything that comes next. Keep up the good fight and thanks once again. Stay safe, take care, and we hope to see you again very, very soon. Thank you. So that is it for tonight. Thank you to everyone for tuning in this evening and yet again being a part of history. Thank you so much for listening to Jersey Virtual We Are Live. Take care of yourselves and stay safe and we shall see you again soon.